Okay, so I tell my mama, Mama, I'm dropping out of high school. My mama's like, what? Lord Jesus, save your pastor, deacon. But she doesn't need to worry. My buddy stumbled on the foolproof plan. See, you can get lists from the government for free of people, individuals, corporations, organizations the government owes money to. Most of the time, the people don't even know they have cash coming. You take that list, find that person, call them and tell them, hey, um, I've got a proposition for you. Free money. No strings attached. I'll tell you the amount. I'll tell you how to get it. All I ask is 10%. My buddy says people are owed hundreds of thousands, millions. You can make one million dollar deal with one person and 10% of that million dollars is a hundred thousand clams, baby. That's a lot of scratch. All yours for five minutes work. I can't wait to pull up to East Kentwood High School in my new Porsche 911 and tell the principal to kiss my... <sighs> anyway, it takes a little while. But I do, in fact, get my list of names to call. And I'm considering whether to order the interior wood package for my new Porsche when I start dialing. Hello, Mr. Johnson. Yes, well, who I am is not important, sir. But what I can offer you is... I need you people to stop calling me. You think I don't know my own business? Click. <sighs> Seems like somebody might have already called Mr. Johnson. Let me move on to the next one. Miss Star. Let me cut right to the chase. Now, this may sound unbelievable, but I'm thrilled to let you know that... Click. Click. Hello, you want some money? I know you can get some money. Click. Turns out that perhaps a few hundred thousand people have gotten my list before I've gotten my list. Catastrophe. After all my hopes and dreams and whatever I may have mentioned to the cheerleaders, I'll have to drag myself to high school. Portionless. Today, on Snap Judgment, the golden lure. One man's quest for the big score. My name is Glenn Washington. I'm still waiting to upgrade the wood trim in that Porsche I do not have. When you're listening to Snap Judgment. Again, with the request, be careful what you wish for, Snappers. Because our storyteller, Joe, he's about to rediscover that old piece of wisdom the hard way. Snap judgment. He's seen it his whole life. He goes, gold makes people crazy. They get like gold fever. And just looking at it, it just changes people. And he said that there's a lot of people out there that have this gold fever really bad and you have to really worry about that and he said for me to be extremely careful don't let anyone know anything and he said you're going to have to protect your family Joe Panisi's family started fishing in the San Francisco Bay in 1906 his grandfather came from Sicily and he taught Joe's dad to be a fisherman just like him to them if you were a Panisi 
you were a fisherman. I, I never, ever wanted to be a fisherman. Never. I was the only kid in my family that got so seasick. I mean, a deathly sick. But Joe's dad didn't think it mattered. He just told him to suck it up. When my dad was fishing with my grandfather, my dad got seasick too. My dad would throw his guts up, and my grandfather would put a bucket right next to the wheel and tell him, you want to be a fisherman? There's your bucket. But then when he got older, he got over it. Joe didn't want to get over it. He didn't want to be a fisherman. He hated everything about it. The worst thing is for me to start the trip off like 1 or 2 o'clock in the morning. We row up to the Diana. It was an 83-foot big wood boat, and it was about as wide as... um, two sidewalks and it had these real fat guardrails on it and um we get the skiff tied up and then we have to climb over the guardrail but the guardrails are full of bird poop right because the birds walk up and down the guardrails and poop constantly and so in the middle of the night when everything gets soft and wet and then you put your leg over the guardrail you instantly get bird crap all over your butt, your legs, and stink so bad. And so that's how you start your fishing trip, with bird crap all over you. With the boys on board, Joe's dad would go down into the belly of the ship and get the engines going. So then once he would get upstairs, he'd get into the galley, and then he would dip newspaper into the diesel and get the stove going, which stunk like hell and make you want to throw up. And he had to get his coffee going. That was That was the... Like the one thing that was a constant on the boat, there was always a coffee pot going. Like this one night, Joe was 12 years old. And it wasn't just the bird crap or the smelly diesel stuff that was getting to him. It was the terrifying weather and where they were headed. You only have like this little sandy spot that weaves in between these big walls of rocks on each side of you. This is called the gates. Which is short for gates of hell. In fact... In Lauren numbers, a kind of outdated fisherman's GPS, the last three digits for the gates are 666. And that fishing lane was a beast. A lot of other trawlers had lost their nets after they got caught in the reefs below. And some even say they were dragged down with them. you got to imagine being on a, a boat and it's rolling back and forth. Now, you know, that's like a natural position for a boat, right? But when you have a net on the sea floor and you're trolling it and you're towing it along the sea floor, if your net hangs up on something, all of a sudden, you know, now you are attached to the bottom of the ocean. It's no different than doing a nosedive. If we, if we were towing through the gates and we hung up and we rolled over, you'd be dead. There would be no way of even getting a radio call out. But Joe's dad didn't seem to care because the gates were teeming with fish that morning. And Joe and his two brothers had just pulled up a huge hole in their net. My dad made a short tow because uh, the weather was so bad, he could not turn the boat to try to follow the contour of the bottom. And he had like 5,000 pounds of fish. And the boys are struggling to get this massive catch down and into the fish hole. So these waves are crashing over the boat. We're trying to put the fish down inside the fish hole. And then my dad came down onto the deck And he was looking at the fish. And then one of the things he did was he goes, you know what? He goes, you see these fish right here? He goes, you see the slime on them right here? When you see that slime, that means that there's a lot of fish around. And so that's when he told us this was a good tow, but this next tow is going to be much bigger. And and at that point, I was nervous because I'm like, this weather has picked up to a point where it's 
You know, it's frightening. Joe wanted to go home, but he couldn't say anything. And my father had like this diesel smell that just it permeated in his skin. And he wasn't really super tall, but man, did he have a set of shoulders on him. I still remember as a young kid watching my dad grab crowbars to move things on the boat and actually bending the crowbars like they were nothing. He was the type of guy where he was very easily excited. And so he was like a powder keg, always ready to go off. And for that moment, all he kept thinking about was the 5,000 pounds we just caught, you know. And so, so he, you know, was just into this fishing mode. And I mean, the boat is just like flying down into these big, vast crevices and, and then just waves are breaking over the bow. And then whenever I would look up at the stack, all I could see was this big white ring from all the spray that had been hitting the exhaust stack it was sizzling into salt right in front of your eyes. So the net comes up like a giant whale and it just clears the water and then just comes down and just the, this tremendous splash. I mean, it was like somebody throwing a ship into the water. So it was, it was maybe 30 tons of fish, you know, that was in the net. I hadn't even seen that much fish in my life. That's when I realized that this was what drove my father. And, you know, I could see that, um, you know, that, that one special moment that's all it took was just that moment. That's what you live for. And it, it's such an adrenaline rush. You know, it's it's a perfect symphony between a man and his craft. And it solidifies everything that you are. You know, it kind of brings you, it makes you whole in that one moment. At that point, I, I started understanding my dad. But now the real challenge was about to begin because they would have to bring those 30 tons of fish aboard while they were being pummeled, wave after wave. Every time we try to lift the net, it makes the boat lean over further. So you're standing in water up to your waist and you see your fish boxes and everything just floating right off the deck and into the sea, you know? And as this is all happening, my dad is right there in the middle of it. He stood at the center, like Poseidon, unmoving, yelling over the wind and the waves telling his boys to get the fish down into the fish hold faster and faster. The waves are just are smashing the net up against the side of the boat, and the fish, they all have these big bones, you know, rockfish and things like that. They're all stabbing each other and bruising each other with their hard heads. It got so bad that the waves started turning purple from a mixture of water and fish blood. I'm looking at the, the whole picture going, what are we accomplishing? Everything's getting destroyed and washed over the side, and this is, this is, it's just so dangerous, especially when you're just there with your, with your other two younger brothers. I mean, you know, we were little kids pretty much. No, they were little kids, 11, 12, and 13. And they'd already been up since one in the morning and it was pushing past eight in the evening. So with fatigue setting in, Joe finally spoke up. Dad, these fish are all beat up. I, I, I said, you know, I mean, I don't know if we could save these things, you know. And at that moment, he just looked at me and he said, they're all going to be filleted. You're not going to know, you know, the difference. He goes, you know, just put them aboard. So somehow, after four grueling hours, they got it done. The greatest feeling in the world, especially after going through an event like this, is to, to actually turn the net reel 
this big giant spool in the back of the boat and finally reel the last little bit of fish and net up aboard. So now the whole net is back in the boat, right? You dump out that last little bit of fish and now you're done. Me and my brothers, we were so exhausted and we we finally got back onto the cabin and we opened the cabin door, took like one step in and we all just fell, boom, 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 and laid right on the floor. We were sopping wet. That's when Joe's dad came down into the cabin and told him what a great job they had done. And he told him to get some rest because they were about to go out and do it all again. At that moment, I, I truly thought my dad was insane. I, I truly thought, I was like, this man, this man is not right. I was never going to go on a boat with him again. I was done. You keep gambling with your life, eventually you're going to lose, especially with the ocean. Before heading back to the gates, Joe's dad went to make one more pot of coffee. He turned on the water faucet, but it was dry. And he throws a coffee pot into the sink, and then he goes, well, if something happens and we need to put water in the engine, we don't have any. He goes, we're going in. Apparently, the boat couldn't take it either. And rather than risking his engine, Joe's dad headed for home. I mean, you just get happier and happier and happier, and then pretty soon you got the waves on the back of the boat that are pushing you right into the bay. When we came in, then we tied up next to the dock, and I remember I just wanted to, like, hug the pilings on the pier. <laughs> As they unloaded their haul, the fishmongers from the market couldn't believe how many of the fish were completely mangled. I mean, clearly, everything we did was for nothing. It's All these fish were beat up, and, and we lost more than half of them. And then the rest of the you know, fish they would send to cat food. So, they would, you know, I think cats got more out of it than the people did, for sure. <laughs> year after year, Joe just bided his time on his dad's fishing boat. And my senior year, I told myself, okay, I don't know if I'm stupid or not. I'm going to try a little bit in school because I was really hoping that there would have been something else I could do besides fishing. You, you see your friends, everybody's separating. It's like the Blue Angels when they all go in different directions, you know. Um, and my direction was not, you know, the direction that I really wanted it to go. So for the first time, between shoveling fish, removing their scales, and every other job he had to do, Joe tried to squeeze in some homework. We were getting ready for dinner. And then my mom opens up the mail, and she sees a letter from the school. So she, those were never usually a good thing. Because it was always like, you're in trouble, you're going to have detention. And so she takes it over to my father, and he grabbed the letter. He barely read it, and then he flicked it onto the table. I didn't even know till after my mom goes, honey, you need to read this. It was a letter from his high school counselor saying that Joe had made a huge turnaround in his grades. And he might even have a shot at college. And it was just this encouraging letter like, hey, this kid's got potential, but what are you guys doing to him? Let him go to school. It gave me this overwhelming sense of confidence that, hey, you know, maybe I can actually get an education and do something else. I liked a lot of different things. I liked electronics. You know, I liked fixing things. Every time something broke in my house, my brothers would bring it to me, like clock radios or... You know, any bicycles or, you know, and so I kind of always had this little knack for fixing things. I really would have liked to become a professional person, you know, and not have to um, live this harsh life. I wanted to have, you know, a, a life of some normalcy. 
But my, my dad would never have it because my dad would call us his Marines, you know. So every, every time there was a disaster, we got to get thrown in the disaster. So Joe and his brothers packed up their things and they moved out. They got their own house. No more dad, no more 1 a.m. fishing, and no more storms. I am never going to go fishing. I'm never going to be like you. I'm not going to do this. That echoed in my mind my whole life. It was a six-bedroom house, and so we didn't know how to remodel it or anything, and so it was kind of in shambles, and we are living there and with sheetrock and two-by-fours sticking out. And um, so we're like, well, what are we going to do? I spent my entire youth telling myself that this is only temporary. And then I'm looking around at how expensive everything is, and I'm looking at how people, you know, or kind of getting by with the jobs they're having. And at that point, I really had to kind of come to grips with the fact that the only skill level I really had that could, you know, actually financially keep me, you know, um, you know, under in a, in a building and, you know, pay my bills and actually possibly one day um, allow me to feed some children and, and have a wife and all that was was the fishing, because that's the only thing that I was really good at and the only thing that I really knew that well. So there you have it. Joe was a Panese, and that meant he was a fisherman. He and his brothers got a big steel boat and started fishing up in the Bering Sea off Alaska, making more money in a few months than they had in their whole life. And then finally, we flew home, and we had been sending our checks to our bank account. And the bank manager, when he saw me and my brother John outside the door of the bank. He came running from his desk to go open the door for a kid, an 18 year kid, <laughs> because we had a $350,000 check to put the bank. As his business grew, so did his family. He got married. He had more than a half a dozen kids, just like his father. He came back to fish off the coast of California. And now, where he used to see nothing but harshness and struggle in the fishing life, he saw its beauty. When I was a kid, I would have ran and won every Olympic trial there was not to go fishing. And now that I'm older, um, you know, there's just something that lures you back to the sea. I, I could be fishing and it could be pitch black dark and I'll walk out on the upper deck and I'm, you know, leaning over the rail and I'll see the phosphorus coming up under the boat. Looks like it's on fire and... You know, sometimes you'll see dolphins swimming alongside you or the wind and that salt air. I have to say that salt air is something that I don't think I can live without. I really don't. Because uh, the minute I start smelling the ocean, I mean, I'm like a whole different person. So that's really hard to get out of somebody's soul, I guess, because uh, I haven't been able to get it out of mine. There was also something else that drove him that came from when he was just a kid fishing through the gates of hell. To this day, that is the one memory that I have when I'm fishing. And it's like when that net comes blowing out of the water like a giant whale, it's 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 the one thing you can never get out of your mind and it drives you, you know, the rest of your life. Like a race car driver and they, and they see that checkered flag. That is the checkered flag for an American fisherman. But as the government enacted more environmental regulations to protect the oceans, the checkered flag was getting pushed further and further away, especially for trawling. 
Gone were the days where Joe could pull up 30 ton of fish like his father, much less like his grandfather. So he was on the ropes. And then the 2008 financial collapse and a risky investment knocked him clear out of the ring. I was going to have a heart attack because I didn't even have like $10 left to put gas in my truck. You know, in my house, I was like three house payments behind. I was getting letters from the bank saying they were going to take my home. Looking at my kids, feeling like, you know, I couldn't even have any pride anymore. I felt like, um, you know, I truly had destroyed my family and, you know, wrecked everything. And so then that's when I called my wife. And then, so I told her, I'm going to fix this. I'm going to fix it somehow. I don't know how, but I said, I'm going to fix this. He scrambled to keep his family afloat, but eventually... He had to file for bankruptcy. Also, you know, I had no working capital. You know, uh, there was no way I could have launched my boat to do anything because I could not go to a fuel dock and write a bad check. I mean, I could wind up in jail because everybody knew I was flat broke. I wanted just to run away from everyone. He escaped to the one place that he was free of everyone, his boat. Sure, he couldn't go fishing, but he could still work on it. My boat actually helped me a lot because... I would work on my boat on the weekends and the evenings, and I'd have, that was kind of like my therapy. I would go there and I'd wire things and fix things. Then this one day, while he was replacing the hydraulic lines, he had this kind of crazy idea. I was thinking to myself, you know, um, if we could make like a hydrofoil that we could actually see the fish going into the front of the net. He wanted to hook an underwater camera onto his giant fishing net. Um, You know, then we can actually start learning how our nets work because I was trying to get rid of the small juvenile fish. I was trying to let them go through the net and just keep the larger fish because it was such a problem, you know. And so, not only that, but I mean, who wants bycatch? I mean, these are all the worst evils that trawlers are are always blamed for is destroying the seafloor and killing baby fish, right? The cameras on his nets could help increase his profits while lowering his environmental impact because trawlers are kind of seen as the most destructive form of fishing, which is a big reason why there's so much government oversight. And as sophisticated as fishing had become over the years with GPS and sonar detection systems, Joe was pretty much doing the same thing his grandfather did, dragging a massive net along the ocean floor without really watching how it works down there. So that's that's always a big challenge is that Every fisherman that's ever trawled a net has actually never seen one work. All you see is the results, you know. And so I was thinking about it, and I was thinking, you know, if I was able to make a hydrofoil with a camera and a light, and then I could put it in the net, and it could swim inside the net and and pan and videotape that way, and then I could learn a lot more about how my gear works. Joe went home and got his 10-year-old daughter, Nina, to help him build it. So we took these round rings and we put them together and then we made a little bracket on the inside to hold the camera and the light then afterwards um, I took one of my work shirts and we made a tail like you would put on a kite and we just dangled a work shirt at the very back of it and that's how we invented this camera that actually dangles inside the net his daughter named it the fish eye and it kind of looks like if you recycled ahead of Wally from the Pixar movie and put a couple of 20 inch rings around it like hula hoops And then Joe scraped up a little gas money to take the boat out. He fired up the camera and lowered his nets. The first video was shadowy. So the second time, they lowered the fisheye even further. That second video just blew everyone's minds. I mean, it was to see the seafloor for the first time. 
and see the fish actually swimming in front of the net and going into the net and all the different colors. I mean, it, it was just shocking. It wasn't just beautiful. It was informative, and it immediately started changing the way that Joe had fished his entire life. So here now we got this, the fish eye, and we're, we're able to start modifying our net because a lot of these fish have different shapes. The camera actually helped him make more money fishing because he was becoming an expert at bunching and changing his net to capture certain fish while leaving other fish alone. But he also learned something about the sea floor. The more I looked at the videos, the more I started realizing that these fish, they don't need to be scraped up off the seafloor. You know, they don't need that. They, In fact, all that mud is a big negative thing. Plus, it, you're burning more fuel. You know, we don't need to tear the seafloor up to catch these fish. And we started bringing in the, the nicest fish we ever caught. I'm the only trawler probably in, on the entire continent that keeps every single fish we catch because my net is so good at sorting the fish. And so the cameras all did this for us. So Joe was hooked. He was watching fish TV all the time. And unfortunately, so was everyone else. In the mornings, even whenever I'm making breakfast for my kids, I would tell them, okay guys, you can't have breakfast without a movie. So I'd always stick my laptop up on the counter and it would always be a fish video. And all my kids are sitting on the bar stools. They're like, oh, Dad, do we got to watch another fish video? And so, I mean, everywhere I go, I'd bring my laptop and I'd show all my friends, hey, you want to see some fish video? I'd be at a softball game up on the bleachers and going, you know, rooting for my kids' teams. And then there would be a bunch of little kids on the bleachers. I'd ask the parents, hey, is it all right if they see a fish video? I mean, I've showed fish videos to so many people. But that night, it was about probably one o'clock in the morning by this time now my wife had totally fall asleep so she was out so i didn't have to worry about the light bothering her so i put the laptop on my chest and so i had this one video that I had not seen yet from my fishing trip from the day before so i stick this video in and i'm watching it and i start seeing like these flashes I had never seen these flashes before because all the videos I've seen, I didn't see anything like reflecting back from the light, you know? And so I start thinking that there's something different about this video, but I didn't know what it was. And so as the video is rolling, I see something go by and it looked like a hand. And I'm like, well, that's weird. And then I see some more flashes and then pretty soon I see a gold bar go by. And as soon as it went by, by that time it was like two o'clock in the morning. And I mean, I didn't even think, I didn't even second guess what it was. And I just jumped up out of the bed and I'm like, oh my God, oh my God. And I, so of course now my wife is pissed off because night after night, whenever I'm home, I'm watching these stupid fish videos that's driving her crazy. And I'm like running around the bed and running, I'm not, and I go over, I'm like, Grotz, get up, Grotz, get up. I go, you got to see this. I go, this is, I go, this is a gold bar. I go, there's a gold bar underwater. I go, look at this thing, right? And so I uh, I play the video back for her and she's half asleep and, and she always kills me because she always will make comments like, is it going to make our life better? Uh, is it going to put money in our bank? You know, 
you know, are we going to be rich? You know, these kind of things overall, a lot of my crazy ideas. And most of the time I have to answer her by saying no, but wake up anyway and look at it. You know what I mean? So she, she looks at the computer and she's watching the gold bar go by and she goes, is that me? We're going to be rich. That's what she tells me. Right. And I said, well, I don't know. Don't go anywhere, Snappers. We've got plenty more fish TV for you and Joe's hunt for the gold bars. Stay tuned. 